It is a great privilege for me to join you here at Asbury. I've had personal links with quite a number of you, both in the university and uh, in the college, in the seminary, rather, over the years. And it's, uh, uh, it's one of those situations where I can say, I've heard of you with the hearing of my ears, but now my eyes have seen you. And you are singularly well-situated. Um, I'm impressed by the campus and by the brothers and sisters I've met here this time so far. I'm going to read all of Genesis 39. It's a narrative passage, and you really have to hear the whole narrative to make sense of the parts. Hear then the word of the Lord. Now, Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him and the Ishmaelites who had taken him from there. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now, Joseph was well-built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me but he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him this story. That Hebrew you that Hebrew slave you brought came to me to make sport of me, but as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, this is how your slave treated me, he burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. 
So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. This is the word of the Lord. Now, although the talk, the title given is temptation, I am not going to attempt an overview of all that the Bible says about temptation. I'm focusing on temptation in this chapter. And to get at it, I'm going to suggest we need to read the chapter at least three times. That is, in three ways. First, a moralizing way, then a structural way, and then a canonical way. And in each case, new light comes on about what we are to think of temptation and how to confront it. So begin with the most obvious, the moralizing way. Joseph's temptation must not be thought of as something that happened at 2 o'clock on Wednesday afternoon and then it was done. The dates aren't provided, but as close as we can guess, Joseph was about 17 when he was transported. He apparently became prime minister of Egypt when he was about 34. There is no particular reason to think that Joseph, growing up in the land of Canaan, knew Egyptian. He might have, but there's nothing to suppose that he did. So when he was first sold as a slave, he, he, he was not the head of the household. He started off on the bottom rung probably having to learn the language, cleaning the latrines, peeling the potatoes, or whatever the ancient equivalent thereof was. But in due course, because of the Lord's presence with him and the faithfulness that worked out in his life, he was trusted. And after a long time, we're told, Potiphar's wife, cast her eye on him. After he is in prison, we don't know how long it is he is in prison until he gives the interpretations of the butler and the baker. But after that, it's two years before his case comes up. So we are not to think of this as a glib experience. He is facing temptation as a slave. It would be easy to think that maybe things were turning a little better for him. A woman actually wants him, and the boss's wife, no less. Who knows, but that that could turn out for good in some way. Perhaps it even appealed to his pride. Joseph's temptation was strong because it was persistent. Look at verse 10. She spoke to Joseph day after day, day after day. And then sometimes it could burst out in startling thrust. She finds him alone in the house and makes her pitch. In temptation, it is sometimes easier to win once than again and again and again. This is what found out Samson twice. His tempters came to him again and again and again. 
Water can wear away stone. Just visit Niagara. Temptation can wear away at moral resolution. You read enough stories in the Bible and in our own histories. But what we should focus on as we read this text in a moralizing way is some of the reasons why Joseph successfully resisted the temptation. Number one, because of who he was. Now, I don't mean that in some trite sense. I mean, the reasoning he displays in verses 8 and 9 is a reflection of his character. Verse 8, he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. Now, another man could look at exactly the same facts and come out with an entirely different conclusion. With me in charge, I can arrange to have all the other slaves at the back end of the 40, and um, nobody will know what we're doing. With me in charge, well, the master has entrusted everything else to me. Why not his wife as well? With me in charge, well, in some ways I'm just a slave, but obviously I'm a very talented and gifted slave. And I know she finds me good looking. Did you see exactly the same data, the same facts, which are not in dispute? All are shaped by him to provide reasons for resisting temptation. Whereas another person could have faced exactly the same facts and found reasons for succumbing to temptation. In other words, his recognition that one realm was closed to him was ample reason for not moving in that direction. His character has already been shaped. A number of years ago, I was living in England and came across a, a man, we'll call him John, who had earlier studied medicine at the University of Edinburgh, came from a Christian home with three older Christian sisters, married uh, a young woman, a Christian young woman in the CU, the equivalent of InterVarsity over there. And he and his wife moved to North Africa where he became a doctor in a leprosarium. Years went by in North Africa, and then he moved to Cambridge, which is where I met him, set up practice while he pursued his consultancy papers. He was interested in public health. He was trusted theologically. He became an elder in our church, helped many people with wisdom and counsel. And then uh, one day the news broke. He had uh, gone off with his secretary, nurse, and uh, he was leaving his wife and two children. I knew him reasonably well. The pastor knew him very well. To cut a long story short, he did not back down. There was no sign of repentance. His attitude was rather, what are you criticizing me for? About a year later, I was traveling by car with the pastor, and I, I said to him, what happened with John? 
How do you read that? He said, I don't think he was ever a Christian. I said, whoa, North Africa missionary? Leprosy and flies? Wisdom on the Council of Elders? Lots of signs of fruit? No, he said, I, I've come to that conclusion. He said, let me tell you what I think. He said, I think he was one of those young men who always did what he wanted to do. He was brought up in a Christian home, stroked for being a nice boy, for learning Bible verses, with three older Christian sisters doting on him. Went to university and did well. Was going to become a doctor, and of course, missionary doctor, because he wanted to do public health, and leprosy is a public health disease. He came to the church in Cambridge, and he was respected there and trusted there, and then eventually he saw a pretty young woman in his office, and he did what he always did. He did what he wanted to do. He said, I cannot find any place in this young man's life where he looked temptation squarely in the face and said, this is wrong. And against all that was in him and all that he wanted to do, chose instead to do the right thing. He built a life around doing what he wanted to do. And so now when he succumbs to this temptation, he knows the Bible and all the rest, but he can make his excuses. And the truth of the matter is he acted in line with who he was, doing what he wanted to do. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that Christians can't fall. Don't, don't misunderstand me. I'm saying in this particular case, the character of the man dictated what he did with the facts. So also with Joseph. He successfully resisted temptation because of who he was. Number two. He resisted temptation because he was prepared to call a spade a spade, to call sin, sin. Look at verse 9 again. How then could I do such a wicked thing? In other words, he doesn't view this as a momentary weakness, a, a minor peccadillo, uh, an exception to an otherwise pure life, any such thing. He calls it a wicked thing. Or sometimes, as James points out, we actually blame God. We'll return to that one in a moment. God put me in this situation. What else does he expect me to do, for goodness sake? Moreover, in the third place, not only does he see this thing as intrinsically moral, morally evil, but he understands his moral decisions to be grounded in the very character of God. He resists temptation because he fears God and sees the act with reference to him. Against, again, verse 9. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Proverbs reminds us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
First Peter 1 tells us to live our lives here as strangers in reverent fear. When God describes the wicked person in Psalm 36, he says of him, there is no fear of God before his eyes. I have a message from God, the psalmist says, concerning the wickedness of the ungodly. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Joseph's commitment to God enhanced his loyalty to Potiphar. It shaped his moral frame of reference. Let me tell you frankly that when a man or a woman, allegedly a Christian, sleeps with a partner other than the spouse, that is merely the climax of substantial decline. David understood this a little late, but he did understand it. One of the most moving prayers of confession is Psalm 51. Against you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, he says, after his sin with Bathsheba and his arrangement of the murder of her husband. And there's a part of you when you read that verse that wants to cry out and say, wait a minute. Against you only? God only? Didn't he sin against Bathsheba? He seduced her. Didn't he sin against her husband? He had him bumped off. Didn't he sin against the military high command? He corrupted him. Didn't he sin his own, against his own family? He betrayed them. Didn't he sin against the, the, the entire nation as the chief magistrate? He, he, he was supposed to uphold justice. And now the man has the cheek to say, against you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Yet in a profound sense, the sin is against God alone because it is God who makes sin, sin. To see an action with reference to God reorients all of one's values, all of one's perspectives. David feared God and saw the act with reference to him. Then in the fourth place, Joseph knew not to play with fire. Verse 10 is fascinating. Though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. Those who do not want to get burned do not play around with how close they can get to the fire. Those who really do not want to sleep around. Don't spend a lot of time on pornography. Keep to a path far from her, the seductress, we're told in Proverbs 5. Do not go near the door of her house. Not, you can take a peek in the window, but don't go in. The person drawn to holiness will not try to see how close he or she can get to wickedness. When I was a student at uh, Central Baptist Seminary in Toronto many, many moons ago, we had a number of gifted lecturers, but we had one particular man teaching us pastoral theology who, I say this with reverent retrospect, was boring. Now, you may not know about boring teachers in this august establishment. Maybe they're all so scintillating that 
that, that my words seem strange to you. But in, in this particular school, although we had some fine lectures, this man was boring. He was a good pastor in many ways. But I can remember his lectures. They were always simple, laid out in points. Today, I'm going to talk about conducting yourself when you visit people in hospital. Number one, wear soft shoes. <laughs> Number two, do not sit on the bed. Number three, 25, 26 points of, and he expected us to memorize them too, you know? You know, I'm, I'm a preacher's kid myself. I don't need somebody to tell me not to wear jack boots on a hospital corridor. And of course, I'm not going to do heart wheels on the patient's bed. You, you know, it, 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 was, it was elementary, boring, legalistic, just rules. I wanted to do pastoral theology. But to a class of men, I shall not forget his lecture on counseling women. This could run the other way today, but understand this is a location for how old I am and what was going on then. Number one, stay behind the desk. Number two, if she starts to cry, let her. Number three, stay behind the desk. Number four, if she continues to cry, pass her a box of Kleenex. Number five, stay behind the desk. Uh, 28 or 29 points, I don't remember now. Every second one was stay behind the desk. Well, that, that wasn't a boring lecture. That, that, that was quite memorable. I had two or three internships and so on. Then I eventually became pastor of a church in Vancouver. The very first week I was there, somebody tapped on my door and came in and burst into tears. And they're scrolling up in my mind's eye. Before we had screens that scrolled. Well, <laughs> while we still use strange things called papers and pens. I could see these words going up before my very eyeballs, stay behind the desk, stay behind the desk. So I have had reason to thank Reverend Don Lovedy many times over the years. Joseph knew not to play with fire. One more. Joseph was concerned rather more for his purity than for his prospects. Look at verses 11 and 12. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, Come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. Joseph was not a stupid man. He had to realize that he was crushing her self-esteem. He had to realize that by leaving his cloak there, he was putting himself in her hands. But he fled anyway, because he was more concerned for his purity than for his prospects. His flight saved the first and cost him the other. A coward's flight reverses the priorities. So that's our moralizing reading of this chapter. Now let me suggest a structural reading. Do you see, these ways of reading the chapter 
are called forth by the text itself. You must have noticed that we plunged into the middle of the chapter. But look how the chapter is actually shaped. Compare the first six verses, verses 1 to 6, with verses 19 to 23. We're told in verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Joseph put him in charge of his household. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. That's the first part. That's the way the chapter opens. Last part. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, verse 20. Verse 21, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did, which suggests something very important. God often chooses to bless us in difficult circumstances with perseverance and fidelity rather than place us in happier circumstances. Once again, you could imagine Joseph saying to himself when he was a bit depressed one night, this isn't fair. I've tried to be faithful, I've tried to be pure, and I end up in prison? You can take your religion and shove it. But God was still with Joseph. And blessed him with fidelity a solid reputation, integrity, honesty that stood out in a band of slaves and stood out in a prison. We must not think that when he first went to prison, it was all easy. He just went from slave to slave in a prison, but he was still instantly trusted. In the passage we read earlier in Psalm 105, his feet they hurt with fetters. He was laid in chains of iron. If we want to be holy, we will pursue holiness for God's sake, for holiness' sake, for integrity's sake, for the gospel's sake. Not because we think somehow, foolishly, that it will guarantee us a rich and happy life in this sin-cursed world. Now I want to suggest one more, a canonical reading. The way to get at this is to ask what chapter 39 is doing in the book of Genesis. What would you lose in the book of Genesis if you took out chapter 39? 
Well, at one level, in terms of the big drama, not much. I mean, we could have arranged to have Joseph become Prime Minister of Egypt without this. But before chapter 39, you get chapter 38. And in chapter 38, you find Judah sleeping with Tamar without even the excuse of being a prisoner or a slave. Judah, who will ultimately sire generations down the road, the Messiah himself. So in one sense, chapter 39 is a foil to chapter 38. What about chapter 40? Chapter 39 prepares the way for chapter 40 and explains the circumstances that brought the pharaohs, butler, and baker into prison. And pharaohs, butler, and baker went to their respective rewards. And the butler, when he is out, is told when he is released to bring Joseph's case to Pharaoh, and he doesn't do that for two years, until Pharaoh has a dream. And then the story runs on. Joseph becomes prime minister, and because of that, the holy family, the 70 or so in Canaan, are saved. Along, no doubt, with hundreds of thousands of others, but year after year after year after year of great, great harvests, granaries bursting at the seam all over the place, so that Egypt becomes the breadbasket, not only for Egypt, but for the whole eastern Mediterranean, including the land of Canaan and his own father, brothers, their spouses, their children, 70 of them are spared. And out of that then comes the move down to Egypt by the 70, and they set up residence there and multiply, and eventually are enslaved by a pharaoh who knows not Joseph, as the text says. And out of this then comes the rise of Moses, the escape, the exodus, which becomes the paradigm for liberation right through the Old Testament and the New. It becomes the paradigm for liberation, for example, at the time of the exile. In Luke's Gospel, Jesus accomplishes his exodus. And with the coming of the exodus comes the law, the establishment of the Levitical priesthood, and some decades later, the establishment of the Davidic line, until ultimately, in the fullness of time, by the mercy of God, in God's own sweet providence, Jesus comes. Now, I know that there are some people who are very suspicious about claiming a Joseph typology. Well, there are typologies and there are typologies. There are there are several kinds of typology. But in this case, it's not exactly a typology I'm appealing to. I'm appealing to biblical history. The fact of the matter is, I'm going to overstate it. Humanly speaking, Jesus was born because Joseph kept his zip up. Now, I know what Mordecai says to Esther. Who knows but that God has raised you up for such a time as this. And 
If you don't do what you're supposed to do, then be assured salvation will arise for Israel from some other place. So it's not as if all of church history and all of redemptive history and all of gospel history depends on one man keeping a zipper up. God has his ways, God has his plans. But what is clear is that as the narrative unfurls, Joseph has occasion to think about this himself. In the last two or three verses of this book of Genesis, he reflects on the fact that he was sold by the brothers into slavery. And his theological analysis, God meant it for good. You meant it for evil. Somehow God's sovereignty was so working out without God ever himself becoming evil. That that wretched betrayal, that family shame, that cruelty, that barbarism, the slavery, the prison sentence, all of it was brought about by God for good. Not only to save his family, but ultimately to predict the coming of the lion's whelp. So there is a sense in which you sit in your chair today here at Asbury Theological Seminary studying the word of God and rejoicing in the gospel of Jesus Christ because Joseph kept his zipper up. Now again, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that God might not have done it some other way, but this is the way he did do it. And it may be that in temptations you face, by the grace of God, you confront them. You resist them. You fan into flames your love of holiness. You think with eternity's values in view. And you come to Asbury Seminary. And there you meet a girl or a guy. You fall in love. You get married, have children, who are carefully brought up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, face their own struggles and temptation. Two generations down the line, the gospel is still bearing fruit. They give birth to a new John Wesley. Why not? That John Wesley came because you fought your temptations and pursued holiness for the gospel's sake. So there it is, brothers and sisters in Christ, a moralizing reading, which is important, a structural reading by which we see God's providential, mysterious ways of working even through our weakness to bless us with integrity, and a canonical reading that brings us right to Jesus Christ. Let us pray. In an age, Lord God, where sin is often joked about, we want to learn the fear of the Lord. In an age when sexual sin is recast 
as freedom, the worst thing being sexual suppression. We want to learn to love holiness and fidelity. In a world in which the horizon is so short, what is good for me, for my pleasure? We want to remember the words of the Master, who tells us, what shall it profit someone to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Forgive us our sins, which are many, and grant us a passionate love for holiness. For Jesus' sake, amen.